Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. The Supreme Court's historic remote argument session is in the books, but the work of the court continues. While we're waiting for the justices to hand down the last opinions of the term, the court's emergency docket has been busy, including with DOJ's efforts to keep the full Mueller report secret. And the justices continue to meet in conference, like they're doing as we record this on Thursday, May 21st, to discuss pending petitions that they might grant to fill out their docket for next term. And since we're in a sort of in-between time right now, it's the last part that we're going to focus on in this episode, an issue that the court might take up, but an important one either way. That's right. The issue of qualified immunity has been gaining steam recently. The legal doctrine that shields public officials, including police officers, from civil liability has been increasingly criticized from all across the political spectrum. And there are a bunch of petitions that have cropped up at the court trying to take down the doctrine, or at least to rein it in. Later in the episode, we're going to bring on Jay Schweikert of the Cato Institute to talk about the issue that his group and a bunch of others have been challenging at the Supreme Court. But first, Kimberly, we did get one opinion this week. Can you catch us up on that one? Yep, just one. Uh, This one was another unanimous opinion written by Justice Gorsuch in Opati versus Sedan. The Supreme Court revived a $4.3 billion punitive damages award against Sudan related to two al-Qaeda bombings of American embassies in East Africa in 1998. So what was the legal issue there? Well, Congress didn't actually allow for punitive damages in terror cases until about a decade after these bombings occurred. Now, Sudan says that the statute's language isn't clear enough to allow for punitive damages to apply retroactively, uh, but the Supreme Court did not agree. It said Congress couldn't have been clearer uh, on that particular point. So some rare props to Congress from the (laughs) court. All right. Well, uh, before we turn to our guest... I'll give a quick update on some of that emergency docket action that I mentioned. On Wednesday, the court granted the Justice Department's application to stop the D.C. Circuit's ruling against the government from immediately going into effect. Uh, Otherwise, it would have required them to give House Democrats the still redacted portions of the special counsel's report on Russian interference in the 2016 election. Well, it seems kind of like that was a little bit expected, right, Jordan? Because you can't really unring a bell once it's been rung, right? Right. What does this really mean? Um in the short term. Right. So in the short term anyway, it means that the full Mueller report is going to stay under wraps at least for a little while longer. The court agreed to pause the D.C. Circuit ruling from taking effect while it gives DOJ the chance to appeal to the justices. So that's really what it does. It gives DOJ the opportunity to make that appeal before the you know bell being rung, as you're saying. And so the Supreme Court said that DOJ's cert petition is due June 1st. So assuming the court keeps some semblance of its normal schedule this term and next term, That would give the court the chance to decide relatively soon whether it'll hear arguments in the case next term, which begins in October. And so if it does agree to hear the case, then the question is obviously whether the court is going to block release of the full Mueller report. And if the court were to rule against the government, a question is whether it does so in time for those materials to come out before the 2020 election. And all of this comes as we're awaiting decisions in the Trump subpoena cases that were just argued, which could also have implications for 2020. That's right. The cases just keep coming. And this application from DOJ was one of the latest in a pattern of the department under Trump going to the court for emergency relief. That same day, actually on Wednesday, the Justice Department applied for a stay of a lower court ruling 
requiring the government to transfer vulnerable prisoners from an Ohio facility where inmates have been dying from COVID-19. And according to Professor Steve Laddick, a prior guest on this show, this latest filing from the administration is the 27th time that they've sought a stay of a lower court ruling in less than three years. And that's compared to only eight such requests during the last 16 years. And we actually had uh, some updates in one of those 27 um, instances where the DOJ asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. Actually, just today, Thursday, May 21st, Judge Furman of the Southern District of New York sanctioned the DOJ for discovery violations in the census litigation. You, you remember this one, Jordan? It's... I think I do. This is um, <laughs> this is the judge that um, some of the justices accused of essentially being a conspiracy theorist, right? Putting corkboard and string together and trying to say that the government <laughs> was lying. And that was from Thomas's a partial dissent in the census case that was joined by Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And that was where Thomas said that I do not deny that a judge predisposed to distrust the secretary or the administration could arrange those facts on a cork board and with a jar of pins and a spool of string create an eye-catching conspiracy web. That was one of the that was one of the interesting parts. Ultimately, the Supreme Court said that the Trump administration's rationale for adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census was contrived and pretextual. And uh, this latest move by Judge Furman actually imposes sanctions on the DOJ. And he noted, and I'm going to quote here, that the plaintiff's efforts to obtain discovery in advance of trial both in this court and in opposing defendants' various emergency interlocutory appeals to higher authorities were certainly burdensome. And I'll just note that the emergency is in scarecrows. So it seems like Judge Furman isn't a big fan of the DOJ asking the Supreme Court to weigh in. Right. Well, I mean, the Supreme Court itself anyway, you know, the last stop on the train, they're the ones who've been siding with the administration. And so a uh, last thing I'll note on the orders docket before we bring on our guest is another type of emergency appeal this week, the type that the court usually does not side with. And that was in the death penalty case of Walter Barton. He sought a stay of execution, arguing that Missouri couldn't execute him because coronavirus restrictions were preventing his legal team from effectively investigating his innocence claim. And so his legal team was trying to interview jurors from his trial about evidence that they say showed his innocence, but that all of these distancing requirements um, stopped them from doing so to the extent required. And so the Supreme Court rejected his stay application on Tuesday without dissent from any of the justices. And that led to Missouri carrying out the first execution of this pandemic era. Other states, of course, had postponed executions due to virus concerns. Um, well, Jordan, I think it's about time to turn to a somewhat lighter topic. Okay. Maybe, not really lighter. Qualified immunity. All right, let's do it. And let's bring on our guest to help. Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst with the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Before joining Cato, he was at Williams and Connolly, and he also clerked for Judge Sykes on the Seventh Circuit and Judge Silberman on the D.C. Circuit. Jay, thanks for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Thank you for having me. So Jay, you've really been in the weeds on this qualified immunity issue, tracking it and working on it, filing briefs at the Supreme Court, trying to take it down. Can you help set the stage for our listeners who might not know what exactly is qualified immunity? Sure. So qualified immunity is a judicial doctrine that the Supreme Court invented uh, in the 1960s. And it basically says that even if a state actor, a government agent, violates your constitutional rights, uh, they will often escape liability for their misconduct, even if they violated the law. 
Um, to understand qualified immunity, you really first have to understand our main federal civil rights statute, which we usually call Section 1983, after its place in the U.S. Code. Uh, this is a civil rights law that was passed by the Reconstruction Congress uh, in 1871, shortly after the Civil War, uh, and was largely intended uh, to protect the constitutional rights of recently freed slaves. And it's a pretty simple statute. It basically says that any state actor who violates someone's rights uh, shall be liable to the party injured. It's a very straightforward, your rights are violated, you get a remedy, period. Uh, and that's how the statute was interpreted um, for uh, basically a century. But then in the 1960s, the Supreme Court basically started creating this doctrine that came to be known as qualified immunity, which, which grafts this extra requirement onto the statute. Under qualified immunity, it's not enough for a civil rights plaintiff to show that their rights were violated. They also have to show that the government agent violated, quote, clearly established law, end quote. And that phrase, clearly established law, is really the key to understanding qualified immunity because it's an exacting standard. What it, what it basically requires, in essence, is that a civil rights plaintiff find a prior case already decided in their jurisdiction where someone else's rights were violated in nearly the same way as theirs. And I mean specific fact patterns. If you can find that, then okay, maybe you can get redress for your violations. But without that, you'll lose. So in other words, it's quite common under qualified immunity for courts to say to civil rights plaintiffs, yes, your rights were violated, but we can't find a prior case where someone else's rights were violated in the same way, so you lose. So, you know, having a requirement that says, you know, the cops have to, you know, know that what they're doing is actually wrongful doesn't seem all that bad. Um, but how has that played out in practice? Sure. I mean, when you describe the doctrine in the abstract that, you know, the cops have to have noticed that what they're doing is unlawful. It sounds reasonable enough. I will, I will say even at that level of generality, it's not what the statute says. Um, but that's really, that, that sort of makes it sound like it's a, a good faith requirement, um, that cops have to have, you know, a good faith belief that what they're doing is unlawful before they can be held uh, liable. But that's actually not how it works in practice, because what it really comes down to is, a, a hunt and peck through prior case law to see if you can find cases that are basically exactly on point, whether or not the defendants had any actual knowledge of that, and even whether or not they were actually acting in good faith. So to kind of flesh this out in a concrete example, um, one of the one major recent qualified immunity case called Jessup versus City of Fresno involved police who were alleged to have stolen over $200,000 in cash and rare coins in the course of executing a search warrant. Basically, they just they just pocketed this for their personal gain. Sounds legal. Sounds totally legit. No one disputed that it was illegal, <laughs> right? And this uh, the, the individual who was stolen from brought a 1983 claim, and the Ninth Circuit said, well, you know, we don't have a case addressing these facts, so qualified immunity. Now, obviously, it, it's self-evident that the police here didn't have a good faith belief that what they were doing was lawful. Nobody even argued that. But under qualified immunity, that doesn't matter. All that mattered is they didn't have a case with these same facts. And that was enough for them to get qualified immunity. And so what happens the next time the cops steal the same money mm -hmm. and the plaintiff sues and goes to court? So one of the weird uh, features of qualified immunity doctrine is that uh, there's, there's basically a two-step analysis where first courts can ask, uh, did this actually violate someone's constitutional rights? And if it did, 
were those rights clearly established? So it's really that second step where qualified immunity is doing the most work. But the Supreme Court has actually told courts that they have discretion to address those steps in either order. So what that means is that if, if, if courts are faced with a novel or difficult constitutional question, they don't actually have to resolve that merits question. They can say, you know, whether or not this was a constitutional violation, it wasn't clearly established, so case dismissed. And what that means is not only does that plaintiff lose, but the law does not become clearly established going forward. So it's a kind of catch-22, right, where the law has to be clearly established to get redress for civil rights violations, but under qualified immunity, courts don't have to establish the law to dismiss the case. So the exact same misconduct could occur, even committed by the exact same defendant, you know, the next day. And unless the, if the court chose to skip that first step, which increasingly they are doing, um, especially in difficult questions where we are most in need of clarification in the law, uh, you know, you can just have the same misconduct occur again and again and again. So not only is this doctrine denying justice to victims whose rights were violated, but it also is stagnating the development of the law generally. Okay, Jay, so you've laid out this case that it's this catch-22 Kafkaesque situation, but you, you would think that given that you might at least have a strong minority of the court that is speaking up about this. You know, we've seen some separate writings from Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas calling for a further review of the doctrine, but it really just doesn't seem like there's been any appetite from the court as a whole to take the issue on. And if anything, if you follow the issue and you look at something like this big Reuters investigation into qualified immunity that just came out, it's it's more like the justices are active participants in keeping the doctrine going. So the question then is, what is it about this moment, do you think, after all these years that could be the time that the court is actually going to change course? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the the, the, the court sometimes moves pretty slowly by outside standards. <laughs> uh, to, maybe, it's, maybe that's an understatement. Um, you know, I mean, I, as, you, as you mentioned, I think, I, I, you know, I think some of this moment kind of started in 2017 when Justice Thomas and his concurrence in Ziegler versus Abbasi uh, laid out a lot of the historical legal criticism of qualified immunity, um, citing to uh, scholarship by Will Bode, who had an extraordinarily influential piece called Is Qualified Immunity Unlawful?, which just lays out all of the problems with the supposed legal justifications for this doctrine. And Justice Thomas said, you know, this looks pretty pretty bad. Maybe we should reconsider this. And I think to a lot of people like uh, in the public policy and litigation world, that was kind of a signal that, hey, you know, maybe there's an opening here. And that's really been our project at the Cato Institute for the last couple years since we launched this campaign is to identify uh, appropriate vehicles for the court to reconsider this doctrine and to provide strategic amicus support, not just on behalf of the Cato Institute, but on behalf of a uh, diverse and wide alliance of public policy groups from across the ideological spectrum, all urging the court to take up this issue. Um, and I think that that's, you know, has played a part. I mean, it's hard to say for sure, but I, I, I mean, I, we really, I think, have assembled what, in my view, is the most diverse set of amici ever on a single brief, uh, urging the Supreme Court to take up this question. And I, you know, I'd like to think that that's hard to ignore. So in the next few weeks, you know, we may finally see the first steps of the of the justices starting to, you know, take up this question and, and examine whether this doctrine 
has any justification. Well, I actually wanted to talk to you about some of the cases um, that are in front of the justices right now. I think um, we're watching about 13 of them that the justices are considering, um, and they've kind of been moving them around a lot, jumbling them. So they had them on conference, and then they took some off, denied some. Looks like today they're going to be talking about eight of the cases. Wondering if you could tell me um, which one you think is likely to be granted, if any, and um, you know which which ones we should be really looking out for. Sure. Um, so I would say probably that the three most significant cases are Baxter versus Bracy, Zeta versus Robinson, and Corbett versus Vickers. The reason I pick those three is that those are the three cases where one of the questions presented in the cert petition is explicitly should the doctrine of qualified immunity be reconsidered? Um, and so if the justices are interested in taking up this larger question, you know, those are the cases that, that cleanly present, present that. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at Baxter, uh, and just to, to, to briefly describe this case, this is a, a case where a man, Alexander Baxter, was um, a suspect uh, uh, being chased by police, and he surrendered to them. And he sat, you know, sat on the ground, put his hands up and surrendered, but they nevertheless deployed uh, a police dog against him who caused him really serious uh, injuries um, from, from bites. And he sued for excessive force. And in the, the Sixth Circuit, the appellate case, I mean, this is remarkable. He found a prior case where an individual had a police, had surrendered to the police, was laying on the ground with his hands at his side. They, the police deployed a dog against him. He suffered serious injuries. And the court held that that violated his Fourth Amendment rights. You would think that would be exactly on point. But the Sixth Circuit said, well, in that prior case, he was laying on the ground. Oh, my. And in this case, he was sitting on the ground with his hands up. And, you know, Baxter points us to no case showing that sitting on the ground with your hands up on its own is enough to put police on notice that, you know, <laughs> use of a dog is enough. So that shows you just how absurd this doctrine is in practice. So I think it's, it's and this, this case actually has been fully briefed and ready for um, consideration by the court since this past October. The court has now rescheduled it six times. Obviously, they're looking at this very closely. And now that that kind of, that case is sort of aligned timing-wise with some of these other cases that also present this underlying question of whether the doctrine as a whole should be reconsidered, the, the fact that the court has kept all those cases together, to me, is you know, a good indication that they're looking very closely at it. It's obviously impossible to say with any certainty what they're going to do with it or, you know, whether they would grant one or more of these. It's possible they grant all three of them and consolidate them if they're really looking at this underlying question. Um, but I think that of the, of the remaining cases before the court, I think those are the three most significant ones. Uh, I guess maybe it'll depend on what happens in the next few weeks with these petitions, but do you see any movement from Congress on this issue? It absolutely is something that Congress could take up and address. Um, I mean, we think that it would be appropriate for either the court or for Congress to address this. Um, because there has been so much momentum behind some of these cert petitions, I think all eyes are on the Supreme Court at this point. Um, because obviously if the court takes up this question uh you know, in the next few weeks that, you know, maybe sort of remove some of the urgency for Congress to address it. And obviously there's a lot more attention right now on COVID-19 related concerns. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, I mean, we have had some, you know, preliminary policy based discussions with members of Congress. We had a Hill briefing a couple of years ago just to educate 
members about this issue. And so we've been developing those relationships to make sure uh, that, you know, the sort of key members of the, especially in the House Judiciary Committee, understand uh, this doctrine and what the Supreme Court has done to distort Congress's statute. So if the Supreme Court, in my view, neglects its duty and declines to take up this question, then, of course, uh, it'll be even more urgent for Congress to take it up. Um, but, but at this point, I think, you know, this, this is a judge made doctrine that the Supreme court kind of plucked out of the ether and grafted onto a statute that couldn't have been clearer. And therefore, you know, I think first and foremost, it's, it's the court's job to fix its mistake. Um, so I hope that they do that. Um, but if they don't, then, you know, it'll be up to Congress to, uh, you know, clarify that this statute in fact means what it says. Always great to rely on Congress. You know you're in a good position. Uh, but I will say, I mean, I do think that this issue in particular has a lot of potential for bipartisan or nonpartisan support, right? I mean, I think as evidenced by the diverse array of organizations uh, that have joined some of these amicus briefs, um, you know, there's a lot of potential for, uh, you know, uh, members of Congress from, you know, each and all parties to say, hey, you know what? We may have different views on which constitutional rights are the most important or what they mean, but we all think at least some of them are really important. And if you care about any constitutional right, you should care about their means of vindication. And that is what Section 1983 was supposed to provide, and that is exactly what qualified immunity undermines. Um, so I think that there is, uh, you know, if this, if this ends up requiring uh, congressional action, I think that there is... Uh, real potential for bipartisan support on this issue. Well, that'll be interesting to see what the court does with these petitions. I'll just note that that California case that Jay noted about the cops stealing stuff, that was one of the uh, three petitions that was denied most recently. So that one's no longer in the running for being one of the qualified immunity cases that the court might take up. But we do have those other cases that Jay had been focusing on. And so we'll see if the Supreme Court takes one of those. You know, as we were talking about uh, this case, I kept coming back to Bivens' actions mm. and kind of the parallels between that and qualified immunity. Okay. So listeners will remember that a Bivens' action is actually a judge-made action against federal officials for constitutional violations. And the justices have really been reigning in these Bivens' actions, most recently in the case of a Mexican teen killed by a U.S. Border Patrol agent in a cross-border shooting. And we've seen Justice Thomas note that some of the same concerns about Bivens can actually be applied to qualified immunity. So it's a judge-made rule mm. that's not supported by statute. It's a policy decision by the justices, and Congress can fix it if the court nixes the doctrine. So, And yet, this court seems to be working in two different directions on these issues. Yeah, it's an interesting point, the commonalities between them. Well, one common denominator, right, is that seems to be who uh, benefits from both of these doctrines seems to be law enforcement officials, right? That's probably just a coincidence, <laughs> I'm sure. Right. <laughs> but we'll see what the court does in its order list next week. And remember, all you court watchers, that the list is coming out on Tuesday, not Monday, due to the M Memorial Day holiday. Ah, good call. Thanks for reminding me about that. You know, I was probably going to wake up on Monday and start refreshing the court's website at 9.30 and start freaking out when nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, having to constantly refresh the court's website has, as opposed to just being at the court and getting them um, by hand has been one of the biggest eye-openers for me of this lockdown. You're seeing how the other half refreshes. I know. I didn't know how badly you all had it. It's so stressful and terrible. <laughs> but is there anything else that we're watching for on the order list? 
Yeah, so one thing I'll note is that we do have a bunch of gun cases pending. Uh, there's definitely a majority on the court eager to take up the Second Amendment in a new case following the dismissal of that New York gun case on mootness grounds in April. So we'll be watching for that one too, kind of similar thing with these qualified immunity petitions right. and the way that you know there's a bunch of cases that the justices could, cho- uh, could choose from. And so it's just a matter of if they do take up one of them, it's just a question of what vehicle do they want to use to take on the issue. Although one difference is that there isn't really a diverse coalition of people who are backing the, the gun cases at the Supreme Court. No, this is a, the gun stuff's a classic, a classic 5-4 split. Um, so, Jordan, one last thing that I think we should talk about is something that you noted um, and was interesting about an NBC report that came out this week. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Um, there was this report that came out looking at these uh, alleged fancy dinners supposedly hosted by Secretary of State Pompeo before the pandemic hit. And according to this NBC story, the State, State Department officials involved in the dinner said they were concerned that they were using federal resources, taxpayer money, to boost Pompeo's political ambitions. Okay, I see our producer is confused as to why we're talking about <laughs> this. Uh, we're a Supreme Court podcast, so why are we why are we chatting about it? Well, uh, these dinners attracted quite the guest list, allegedly, from billionaire CEOs to GOP power brokers to, yes, Supreme Court justices. Ah, and which of the justices attended these these wonderful dinners? Uh, this is Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch, according to the story. Wow, I'm I'm shocked. Um, I've actually seen this development um, once again put the spotlight on a lack of an ethics code that actually binds to the justices. I'm not really clear that this would be an ethical violation, right. but one thing I wonder is what things like this do for the court's perception. I mean, it, it's not a surprise that those two conservative justices were invited to, you know, a member of the Trump administration's dinners as opposed to the more liberal justices. But the justices insist that they are not partisan actors. And I wonder if situations like this on both the right and the left make that really harder to stomach. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Everyone have a fabulous Memorial Day weekend and hope you and all of the justices are staying healthy. And well-fed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.